incredible game where he led both teams in tackles. He broke up some passes, and he just looked great. And afterwards, the reporters interviewed him, and they said, was there something that inspired you to break out on this day? Was there something that gave you kind of that extra oomph today to explain how well you did? And he reminded the reporters that several years ago, the Atlanta Falcons, who were his opponents, they'd given him a tryout and then passed over him in the draft. He said, whenever I play against those guys, I play with a chip on my shoulder. <laughs> he wants to vindicate himself and prove that they made a mistake in rejecting him. Today we're going to learn that Jesus plays a little bit with a chip on his shoulder. Because he's going to vindicate himself and show the people that they rejected him that they made a big mistake. That's what we're going to talk about today as we continue in the Holy Irritation Sermon Series that we've been talking about. Jesus is irritated. It's not sin. It's holy irritation because it's justifiable. For over three years, he's been talking to the Jewish religious leaders and telling them what they should do, and they've not been responsive. And so he's a little bit irritated with them. He's coming now to the end of his ministry, and he comes in on Sunday, the first day of the Passover week, comes in on a donkey, and we call it what? Palm Sunday. Yeah, so we call it Palm Sunday. The next day is Monday, and he goes into the temple area, and he drives out the merchants. He sets up shop there, and he says, this is what God truly has to say about himself and his kingdom. He starts teaching it. And the following day on Tuesday, you know, in comes the the, the force you know, kind of strikes back, you know, so to speak. The Jewish religious leaders, they're angry now. So they come back in, and they're going to try to disprove him through debate. They're going to discredit him through debates. And last week, Joey did a great job explaining to us from, uh, from Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. He talked about, remember, authority. They question his authority. Do you, where's your authority come from? And Jesus very shrewdly turns it around on them and asks them, uh, questions about John the Baptist. They went back and forth on this, and the bottom line is he shows them their incompetence and the fact that his authority does come from heaven. And then he moves on today, and he talks about what happens when people reject his authority. And he does it with a parable. So we're going to read that parable today. It's found in Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 19. Let me read it. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir. They said, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. 
Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Today we're going to look at who rejected Jesus' authority, and he has a parable here and two Um, people he gives, two people groups he gives. One are the tenants and one are the builders. So we'll break that down. Verses 9 through 16, the tenants rejected his authority. Now, this is a parable, and we've done parables in the past. Remember, when we're dealing with a parable, we're comparing uh, a reality, something that's a spiritual reality, with something that's a physical reality. So the physical reality helps to clarify the spiritual reality. In this case, it's a prophetic parable. If you pick that up, there's some prophecy going on here along with some other things. It's a a pretty powerful parable that he has here. And it's also talked about in another area. There's two other places in the Bible where they record the same story. Matthew does it in Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 46. And Mark does it in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And that's important because they each give a different synopsis, but as we read it together, we can get a fuller picture of what happened. One of the things that Matthew and Mark do for us is they tell us more information than Luke does about how he set up this vineyard. And it says that he dug a ditch, he put up a wall, and he put up a tower. And that ties it in specifically to Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, it talks about a vineyard in such a way. And it says that in this vineyard, it says that God has planted his vineyard and his vineyard is Israel. But it says later, he will destroy that vineyard because of its unfaithfulness. People probably reckon that it had been destroyed when things had fallen apart earlier. But Jesus brings it up now in this particular situation. And it becomes part of the parable that he's going to tell. It's insightful um, at first, to think about vineyards, because vineyards in the Old Testament is always, the vineyard is always Israel. He's always talking about Israel. But in this case, I would agree with others that I think it's more than Israel that he's talking about. You don't really give the nation away, so to speak, but you give the responsibility of the nation away. Israel was given a responsibility, and that responsibility was to take the kingdom of God to the world. How'd they do? Did they succeed? They didn't. And Jesus is basically saying that um, there's some problems with this vineyard. It's your responsibility. I gave you this responsibility. And that's how it starts off. He says, there was a man who gave this responsibility, gave this vineyard to Israel. Who would the man be in the parable? Remember, comparing and trust. Who is the man who gives the vineyard? What? God, yes. Somebody said, God, that's pretty easy here. So God gives this responsibility or gives this promise. He gives it to these people. Now, the people he gives it to are called the, the farmers or the tenants, literally the vine dressers. So who is he giving it to? Not Gallo. Who said Gallo? No, not, not Gallo, but he gives it to Israel. Now, some would say that he gives it to the Jewish religious leaders, and that's true because they're part of Israel. They're the primary problem. But they're all involved here. He gives it to the people of Israel. Now, he goes further and he says that um, he he went away for a long time. He gives them, and he goes away for a long time and he sends servants to um, see what the fruit is, to collect the fruit from them. The fruit 
usually, well, in the Bible, always fruit is seeing somebody come into the Lord. That's fruit. Or seeing people do good works. That's fruit. That's fruit of God's kingdom, right? And so, in this case, that's the fruit. And he goes away for a while before he goes to collect the fruit. It takes about five years for this fruit to ripen. But he went away for centuries. Gives him the responsibility. Goes away for centuries. But periodically, he wants to check and see if they're producing any fruit. If people are coming into the kingdom. If people are growing in the kingdom and expanding the kingdom. So he sends servants to check and see how things are going, to collect some fruit. Who would be the servants that God sends? Who do you think? The prophets, exactly, Mark. He sends the prophets. And how do they treat the prophets? They treat them pretty poorly. And he gives an example of three here. Matthew and Mark, especially Matthew, says that there were other examples that Jesus gave in sort of the give and take that was going on in the midst of this conversation. So he gives quite a few examples of them and talks about how they mistreated them. I think that Hebrews chapter 11 really summarizes this. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 33 through 38, the author of Hebrews talks about some of the great saints and servants of the past, some of the great prophets of the past, and what they did well and how they were treated. Starting in verse 33, it says, Who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. But now listen to this. Others were tortured and refused to be released, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. That's what he did to, they did to the servants, to his prophets that he sent. So what is God going to do? And it's here it says, God sort of says, well, I already, I already don't know what to do with this one. You think God ever gets in that position where he says, I, this one kind of stumps me. No, that, that wouldn't fit with what we know about God elsewhere. But remember, this is a story, and a good storyteller is going to bring in these different perspectives to try to pull out to evoke empathy from the crowd get the crowd in on it so he says well God says well what should I do I know what I'll do I'll send my only beloved son and who is that obviously he's going to send Jesus he calls him here agapitos which in Greek means my only beloved child my one and only beloved one it's the same language that he uses in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, and Joey talked about this last week. Remember at Jesus' baptism and the people around, and he says, my, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He uses Agapitos, my only beloved one. Matthew records him saying the same thing. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, he says, my Agapitos at the transfiguration, my only beloved one. And it shows how much God loves Jesus. And so he sends him because he thinks that they'll respect him. And in the story, they decide to kill him. And it's absurd that they would do this. But what, see, they're thinking is in those days, if 
nobody claimed the land. Whoever was working the land basically could claim it as their own. So when the sun comes, they apparently assume that the sun has come to claim the land for the dad, and the old man is kicked off. So now we'll kill the man, the son, and we've got this for ourselves. And that's sort of what happened too with the Jewish religious leaders. If we can get rid of this guy who's coming, he says that he's been sent from God, and he has a message that is going to cause us to change everything and take our power away the way we want it. If we can get rid of him, then we can do things whatever way we want. We'll claim this all for ourselves. And so they kill him. Just a few days after this, it's prophetic. They don't even realize it, but what they're listening to is what they're about to do. And so Jesus responds by this, and um, he says, well, then what should they do? Um, what should the owner do? Well, what would he do but to come in and destroy them and defeat them, wipe them out? And then he gives instead, he gives what they have to others. Who would the others be? Who are the others that he gives this responsibility to, to, to share the kingdom with? It'd be, it'd be the followers of Christ. It'd be the early disciples or apostles and the disciples after them. And by the second century, they had become almost entirely Gentile or non-Jews. He had passed it on. I don't know how much these guys really got the whole import of what he was saying, but they're upset. May it never be. They're not excited about what he's saying. So they get it to some degree. In fact, Matthew says that he asked this question, when he asked the question, what will the owner do? That somebody actually piped up and said, um, he said, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. So they understood that that's what you're supposed to do. The problem was they didn't want to be the wretches. They didn't like what he was saying. They knew it was related to them. They maybe didn't capture it all, but they're, they're getting it that this isn't good. So what actually did happen? Forty years after this, approximately, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. Without the opportunity to perform the prescribed ritualistic sacrifices in the temple according to Mosaic law, for all intents and purposes, ancient Judaism died. And Christianity at that point had been born and it had been passed on, just like Jesus said it would be. Isn't that amazing? But he's not done. He has some more people to speak to. And now he says that the builders reject his, his authority in verses 17 through 19. So he starts talking about the builders. And he, and he does something in verse 17 that I think is worth paying attention to. It says that he looked directly at them. He looked directly at them. And in the Greek, the, the idea was that he, he gave them a penetrating look. The Bible doesn't talk much about what Jesus looked like. Prophetically, in Isaiah 53, we're told there was nothing exceptional about him. He's just an average guy. But you can tell a lot by a person's eyes, can't you? You can see the depths of their souls. What did his eyes look like when he laughed? What did his eyes, eyes look like when he was teaching something very important to him? What did his eyes look like when he was upset? Something about the way he looked at them was so memorable that it was passed down 
to be remembered for us. He looked at them and he stopped them where they were and got their full attention just by the look in his eyes. And then he reminds them of one of their favorite prophecies. Psalm 118, verse 22. Why is this such an important prophecy? Because the stone becomes the capstone. Um, and, and here's the story is that it's really probably, it could be capstone or cornerstone. I like cornerstone is probably a better word here, but it achieves the same purpose. It, it holds up the walls. And if you look at a cornerstone, for example, you put a cornerstone uh, in the corner and the intersecting walls line up against it and it holds the walls up, right? Well, here's the problem. In this passage, the king and Israel are being attacked by all the nations. And the promise is, is that God will be their cornerstone and will hold them up. And so they like this passage. Even though others be against us, God will always be the one who exalts us and holds us up as a cornerstone would. But Jesus ruins the day. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, now I am the cornerstone. And you rejected me. How do walls do when they don't have a cornerstone? They fall. He says, you're going to fall because you've rejected your cornerstone. And then he uses two other passages of Scripture that talks about this stone, this other stone. And probably from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, it talks about the stone of stumbling. And Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 through 35, talks about the stone that crushes. And when he says it crushes them to pieces, you know, breaks them to pieces, it's the idea that it's like grounds them to dust. Remember that old song Kansas used to sing, Dust in the Wind? Kind of, that's kind of the picture here that all we are is dust in the wind when God's done with us, if we reject him. And he says, this stone basically comes loose and it rolls around and it destroys all those that try to take it on. And then after Judaism has been destroyed, then he becomes the cornerstone for Christianity. Pretty heavy stuff that he's talking about here. Matthew records him as saying, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people, and he uses the word ethne or ethnic for those that are not Jews or Gentiles who will produce its fruit. The leaders are angry, they're frightened. It's obviously that he's on to, to what they're saying. He knows they're going after him, and they know that he's talking about them. I would say the builders are still Israel, but there's perhaps a little bit more emphasis on the responsibility of those who are doing the work, building it up, who are going to be the Jewish religious leaders. So we can ask the question, well, what happened to the Jewish religious leaders? Some of them turned to Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, for example, and Nicodemus, they turned to follow Jesus. What about the others? They crucified him. What'd he do to them? He banished them to hell. He destroyed them. That's what he did. And where are they today? Where are, the, where are the Jewish religious leaders today? There are no priests anymore because when they destroyed the temple, there's no longer a need for priests. And rabbis are holding together as best they can a splintered movement. 1948, the kingdom of, you know, the nation of Israel came back. That was powerful. But it's a secular nation with many different belief systems within the nation. It's no longer Judaism. Judaism. 
Again, ancient Judaism is dead. And there's, the leaders all are all splintered. The system died, just as Jesus predicted it would, and was replaced with Christianity. So, what, what do we get this? If we go beyond Israel, how does this relate to us today? There's a principle here. Very important to understand this principle. Now, remember, a principle isn't a promise. It's just that this is what Jesus is saying happened then, and it's typically what happens. Here's the principle. Any person or people who reject Jesus will be rejected and destroyed. Do you get that one? Any person or people who reject Jesus will be rejected and destroyed. Conversely, any who embrace him will bear much fruit in the furtherance of his kingdom. If you embrace him, you'll bear much fruit and you'll further his kingdom. Now again, it's in principle, and obviously within a country, a country might turn away, or a church might turn away, or a movement might turn away from God, but that doesn't mean everybody in the movement does. But as a whole, if a very large majority of people are moving away from God, and the way that they're moving is away from God, then God essentially rejects them. Is that true? Can we look at that in history? Well, we can see it right here. You know, these very educated, powerful religious leaders were destroyed, and Jesus and his followers, you know, Jesus' followers came, uneducated apostles came to power. They, they spread throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. And then we can see early in the church, the people that were in control were trying to turn things away from what the Bible taught, and this is usually typical, and then when they exposed them for, who, what they, for what they were, then the church exploded. And they got back on track, and it exploded. The Roman Catholic Church was born out of that. The Roman Empire ex- expanded and grew. And what's really interesting is almost every 400 years, you'll see that the church would turn away from what the Bible teaches, and the church would go down. And then the barbarians invade. Then the barbarians come to know the Lord, and they turn to the Lord, and Charlemagne becomes a great Christian leader and stuff. And they're doing well. Then they turn away. And then the Vikings come in. And every 400 years, this happens. Is that amazing? And we just see it again and again. And finally, um, the Protestant Reformation takes place and Protestants come into play. And we have not made a mistake since then. <laughs> okay? So we've got our problems, right? You know, and we see denominations rise, and then they turn away and they fall. And they rise, and they turn away and they fall. And churches rise, and they turn away and they fall. And we see this happening with churches and nations Throughout history, we see that the, you know, Europe grew during this time. The, uh, the great, great Britain grew in power, especially under the Wesleyan revivals. But as they turn away, things fall apart. And you can go to Europe today and see most of the churches are empty. It happens to us as individuals. I don't mean to say that, I don't think you, we're saying here that you lose your salvation, but I think at least in principle that you will see people, there may be some here in this room, that once upon a time were in fire, you know, are fired up to serve Jesus Christ. And years have gone by and they've just, they don't live like it anymore. It'd be hard to tell that they know the Lord and they're, and they're lukewarm in their faith. And it's like God has taken their power away and their joy away because they've turned away from Him. You see that in families where the generations break down. You see that in churches. All of us in this room have seen churches who have done well and as they've begun to compromise the teachings of the Bible or compromise their ethics, the churches go down. We've seen that in nations. 
Thanksgiving is here, and we should be thankful for our country. Born with Christian roots through our great awakenings, we've had a birth of a nation, we've had, um, we've had rest, reformation at different times, we've gotten through a horrible civil war, we've had reconciliation. We've become, at, I guess still, considered generally the most powerful nation on earth. But while we often think about how wonderful it is that we sent troops to save and liberate people, I think God was more concerned by having us send missionaries. He used those wars to open up the doors for missionaries to come out from our country more than ever before in history and touch people with the gospel who never would have heard and save their souls. Isn't that interesting? There was something spiritual going on through all of that. Sadly enough, in more recent years, our country has not been following God. And we've begun to see the demise of our country as we see in other countries. And you know what? At the same time, God is doing incredible work in Asia, Africa, and South America, where they're just having explosive movements. Gets your attention, doesn't it? So, with that before us, what do, what do we do? What do we do? I want to say that it starts, it starts with us. And I'm not talking about who you elect for president. We're in election season. We think, oh, you know, if we elect the right president, we're going to turn it around. We've had some good presidents. We've had some bad presidents. But the president can't do it all by himself. It's not up to the president. It's not like, well, I, I did my Christian duty. I elected him. I elected a guy who said he was a Christian and seemed to be pretty good. and We should be all right now. What do we do? You know, I mean, there's all these problems. If not that, what do we do? Our small group was talking this week. We we're talking about ISIS, and it's frightening, you know, all the fighting that's going on around the world and how that might affect us. What do we do with that? What can we do? I want to suggest that I think, based on what the Bible is saying here, is that it starts with you. If every person in this room alone, determined that today was the day they were going to live for Jesus Christ. And from here on out, they were going to get serious about it. And they were going to walk with him the way the Bible describes. I believe it would have a rippling effect that would affect this church, this town, community, and even world. If everybody who claimed to know Christ lived like it, what kind of impact would that have in this world? It's something to really think about. It means we need to pray. We need to talk to Jesus. Thank Him that by grace we have been saved. That He loves us the way He does. We embrace Him. We love Him. We talk to Him. We pray about our lives, about our families, about our world. We gather together to pray. You know, on December 2nd, Wednesday, it's a Wednesday when we come back from Thanksgiving. December 2nd at 6.30, we're going to have a prayer meeting. Typically, when churches have prayer meetings, almost nobody shows up. Now, if we had a big program, like we had our chili cook-off, or we had some kind of a Valentine's ball or something, we would get hundreds. But to come and talk to Jesus and tell him how much we love him and ask him to help us in what we're doing, that is something we don't really we don't want to do. That's not as exciting or fun. And that just doesn't get people out there. 
And it tells us a lot about our state of mind and our state of heart. See what I'm saying? Are we willing to do it? Is it is today today? You know, I mean, it's one of those things where we can really make a difference if we do that. Yeah, are we going to follow, read the Bible? And people say, well, I'm just kind of a baby Christian. You know, I haven't been, only been a Christian for about four years. You know, <laughs> well, you should be reading your Bible. Jesus wants to talk to you and guide us through this time. Get involved in a small group. Develop relationships with others. Lock arms. Have some fun. Because it is fun. I mean, it, it is fun to walk with Jesus and to enjoy others, regardless of what happens. God, God does some amazing things, but, but we need to get together and, and, and do that. How about the 8 to 15 people that are strategically and supernaturally placed in your life? Are you loving them? Are you reaching out to them that they might know Him? Are you inviting them to church? Telling them about Him? And just loving them regardless? Some good things for us to really think about because I think we can really make a difference as we grow in our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, there's one more message, and it's this, that if you have rejected him, you'll be rejected. I mean, this all makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's pretty straightforward. You reject him, you're rejected. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can embrace him. If you admit that you're a sinner in need of salvation. Believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. And choose to follow Christ and put your faith in Him alone. A few days after this took place, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He would overcome something more than a surgically repaired knee he would overcome death itself. And he will come back with a bit of a chip on his shoulder to vindicate himself and set the record straight for the sake of history, for the sake of our salvation, to make everything right. He will come back to set it straight. That means one day we'll all face him either when he comes again, as in his second coming, or when he comes again, more likely, when your life ends. Are you ready for that day? Join me in a word of prayer. Father, this message is ah, somewhat heavy today, but it just is, it is what it is. It's, it's exactly what, what you said, Jesus. Um, you loved us enough to come and die for us. And that anybody would reject such love is unthinkable and justifiable that you would respond the way that you do. We thank you for justice. We thank you that you set the record straight. We pray only that no one here would be missing when that day comes. Pray that each of us would make sure that we have given our lives to you. Come and talk to us if, we, if there's any questions. And if we have, Lord, give us the courage, the strength, and the ability to live as you've called us to, that we might change the world for you as you live through us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.